Well, good morning, folks. Uh, Today, we are going to continue in our series on dialogue with the skeptic. And for those of you who are just joining us uh, today, we have been working through many of the big questions that are uh, that arise in the course of our lives, uh, not just from persons who are not Christians, but from from us Christians ourselves. Uh, that, that, that are the substance of our substance of our doubts. And so we've talked about um, the bad things in the Bible. We've talked about politics. We've talked about whether doubt is even okay. We've talked about um, evil. And, and today we, we, we're going to be talking about suffering. And this is one I think is, is uh, something that uh, uh, we can all relate to. As I begin to think about it, as I, uh, again, to think about this contrast, this this conflict between our faith and our suffering. I I go back to a movie that some of you may be familiar with. It was, uh, it 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 felt like it was a hometown movie uh, because uh, I, my, my aunt's, were Steel Magnolias. You may remember the movie Steel Magnolias. And uh, um, I'm reminded of a particular scene. You may remember that Sally uh, was uh, experiencing, you know, the loss of her daughter due to kidney failure, uh, Sally Field. And, uh, and, and her her character was very stoic at graveside at the committal service for her beloved daughter, like like many of us are. Uh, and she made it through the, the service with great composure. But then when they were walking back to the car with her dearest friends, so you see there surrounding them, surrounding her, uh, her, her grief just erupted. And if you've experienced grief, you know what that is like. It, it just wells up inside you. And in her agony, uh, she, she just poured out a, a mixture of screams and of pain and, and it just pure agony. She's saying, why, why, why? And, and she was like Job demanding answers. And she shouted at God, oh God, I want to know why, why, why? Lord, I wish I could understand. It's not supposed to happen this way. I'm supposed to go first. I don't think I can take this. I had a few similar times like that when I realized that uh, my late wife was going to die of cancer. And I know that some of you have had those same experiences in your lives as you have lost loved ones. So, so difficult for us to comprehend, particularly the suffering that leads to death, the unexpected death. Why indeed? Why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen? And if God is, in fact, as we claim, a, a loving and an all-powerful God, well, why does God allow such suffering? This last is a question that I think is most often asked uh, by those who I've called the skeptics, the atheists, the agnostics, in explaining, when they, when they explain to me their unbelief. And it goes like this. If there was an unloving God, why would he allow tsunamis? Why would he allow Holocaust? Why would he allow diseases that take our lives and sometimes take our lives in such horrific ways? If if God's going to get credit for the blessings, well, then God should also take the blame for the tragedies. And the conclusion is either God doesn't care. And so you're wrong about your claims about God or God simply doesn't exist. Now, I'm guessing that, like me, many of you have asked these same questions somewhere along uh, your journey, particularly if you've walked through the darkest valley, felt all alone, felt forsaken by God, forsaken by the world. 
is the question thinking people have always asked in solidarity with Job. Why does God permit such suffering? I wanted to get into that, but before I get into that, I want to move rather quickly through two rather preliminary thoughts, some some common things that that come up. And and the first one is something that uh, you may have uh, great familiarity with. There was a book by Rabbi Kushner that was very prominent in the 80s and 90s and still still today in which he asked this question. When bad things, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, I really wanted to make a passing comment about this, um, you know, the objection that I want to raise to, you know, to his title uh, is, is uh, more than anything else, because if you dig into the book, uh, Rabbi Kushner is far more profound than the question, you know, seems to present it. But, but uh, just the question itself, why do bad things happen to good people? I want to remind you of something called Schadenfreude, uh, which, is the, which is a German word that has really two meanings. You know, harm, you add harm, the word harm, and you add joy. And, and so Schadenfreude is the pleasure that we derive from someone else's misfortune. And the point I simply want to make is uh, that this is the wrong question. That uh, at our best, when we were, are at our best, we do not take pleasure in another's su- suffering. So our question when we are at our best is about suffering itself and, and not about whether or not the persons who are suffering are good or bad. We're missing the point. It's just about the suffering period. That's a tough enough thing. And that leads to a second question that is, uh, I think, gets us into um where we where you need to go as we reflect on this notion of suffering, and that is why does anything happen? Not just why does why do bad things happen to good people, but why does anything happen at all? And I, and I think this shines light on some common ground that we share, um, where where uh, people of faith answer all things happen uh, because the Creator God creates and sustains all things. In God, we live and move and have our being, as we we spoke about a few weeks ago. Paul, before the Areopagus, said that. The fact that you're here, that there is two or three feet of snow on the ground, that your arthritis is bothering you now, that your heartache uh, is is uh, filled with suffering, and, and, and that you sing with joy, and, and that you cry with sorrow. All of these things have their source, we say, in some way, in the Creator God. This is fundamental. God's hand is in all created things. And as Jesus reminded us, no sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So a fundamental claim that we make is that things happen ultimately for one reason, and that is because God is. The one we know is I am. God is. But once we can agree on that, we people of faith diverge. We diverge as soon as we ask, well, if God causes all things, how does God cause all things? And so what I'd like to do now with you is really highlight two um what I would characterize as unhelpful theories and then offer a, a proposal based upon what I think Jesus teaches us about suffering. So let's deal with the first theory. And the first theory is that God causes all suffering. So this is one of the answers that we give. 
as I mentioned, we Christians begin to disagree with one another once we ask ourselves how God causes all things to happen. There is a spectrum of belief among us on this question that we have to acknowledge. Uh, today, I want to describe two polls that take nearly opposite views on this question of how God causes things to happen. So the first theory is the one that is enshrined in just about every insurance contract that, that you've ever entered into. When we see natural disasters called, named as acts of God, the claim is that God causes our suffering. This thinking is so common. It's part of our culture. And so many of us never think to challenge it. You find expressions of it in just about every church. And I would imagine that includes our own, although I don't hear a lot of you guys speaking in this way. So when there is a natural disaster that uh, leads to some immense tragedy, you know, such as, uh, you know, going way back to, the, you know, from my, you know, my background, the, you know, the horrible hurricane Katrina in New Orleans or the, 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 the uh, earthquakes that, that struck you know, Haiti, the tsunami that struck Thailand, the winter storms now, uh, you know, causing the deaths of many in Texas. Uh, or when someone dies in a pandemic of COVID, uh, I have in mind uh, uh, my uh, my daughter's dear friend, Logan, who's who lost both of his grandparents, both of his grandfathers, I should say, uh, recently in a very short term to COVID. Um so, or, or, or perhaps you yourself, and some of this, some of you are suffering right now from cancer, and some of you have have dealt with in the past folks who have suffered from Alzheimer's. Uh, when you're struck with some kind of disorder that takes away the life that you anticipated you would have for yourself, you thought it was going to be like this, but now it turns out that dream, this this dream you imagined be, be, that that you would end your life in a particular way, has been taken away. Um, when a little girl on the street is struck by a car, or when your marriage ends in divorce. Well, in all these types of situations, we have this tendency to say that God is somehow behind those things. God drives all history according to a preset plan. Therefore, not heaven and earth and inanimate things only, but also the counsels and the wills of men are so governed by God as to move exactly in the course which God has foreordained. Things are predestined is basically what we are saying. Now, you may have absorbed this kind of thinking more than you realize. Maybe you openly absorb it. Many of us use language that presupposes the kind of thinking uh, I'm talking about without ever asking where we got that idea or without ever questioning that assumption. So when when, when, uh, when, when tragedy strikes, we feel like Job. As Job, you know, here talks about, uh, you know, truly the thing I fear came upon me, this dread thing, you know, it, it, it befell me. And when we find ourselves in that situation, we we throw up questions to ourselves and to our friends and to God. And we ask questions, you know, like like these that I'm going to show you. Why is God punishing me with this suffering? So we have this this sense that that rises up from us that God has caused this thing in order to punish us or 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 God simply willed for us to suffer in this way that we are suffering now or we might say I guess God wanted to teach me a lesson have any of you said that to yourself before looked at your circumstance and interpreted as God you know causing the suffering in order to teach you um it must have been God's will 
for me to get cancer. I guess it's my job to trust God and accept my suffering as God given. This is one I've heard many times. Um, and I've heard this and I've shared this, these poignant stories with you before. Uh, I guess God wanted my wife to die. Never forget an 82-year-old man saying that to me on the anniversary of his wife's death as I brought him a, a, um, a cake and sat with him. And he, and he and it just, you know, like, like Sally Field's character, he just rose up in him in grief. Why did God want my wife to die? And, the, and not even questioning the idea that, well, perhaps the, his thinking was not uh, correct. So I want to share with you. Uh, something from someone some of you may know. Dr. James Howell is the pastor. Some of you saw uh, at, at uh, Sejina's and my wedding. He, he was the preacher who, who married us. He's a, a dear friend and a mentor. And he, he's thought an awful lot about this. And and he, he names, he says the same thing that that I would say to, to any of you when you raise these things. I would perhaps be a little bit more uh, delicate uh, in, in the midst of your grief. But the point is the same, that this habit that we have of explaining things that that cause us to suffer is God's will is just plain wrong. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it borders on blasphemy. Um, and we can see that you know, rather easily uh, by just using our reason. So I, I wanted to remind you of that. Um, there's a far side cartoon. And uh, to me, a little bit of humor helps to, to recognize this. All of these underlying all of these is this notion of God who desires, you know, something other than the good for us, who desires to be evil for us. And so in this far side cartoon there, you can't read the buttons perhaps as well. But but God is sitting there at God's computer and, and God's finger is about to press God's smite button. And that's really what we're saying. You know, this is a caricature of that thinking. But this notion that there is a God there that's waiting up somewhere in the yet his computer in the sky about to press a smite button. And when anything afflicts us, that that's God's smite button has been pressed with, you know, with your image on it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I want to remind you that this is not the God we see in the Bible, but this is the notion of a God who is capricious, God, a God we cannot trust. Uh, God does not have a, a smite button. Um, what this kind of thinking in, you know, is implying, even though you might not think of it this way, um, is that, um, that, that, that there's something about our relationship with God. It, it's implying something that, that we would declare, I would declare is just patently false. Uh, and thinking that God causes all things denies the reality of human free will. It's like saying that God is a grand puppeteer in the sky, pulling our strings to cause us to do whatever is in the heavenly script. But we are not puppets and God is not a marionette. God willed it is not the answer to the question, why do bad things happen? Our central claim is that God created all things and that it was good. God declared it good. God hates every act of evil, every instance of human suffering. This is a fundamental claim that we Christians have made through the centuries. So let's talk about 
the second theory, which is related to this, and it is that uh, uh, sort of the opposite. The first one holds that God um, is, is is so involved in almost like a puppet master causing evil things to happen. This one is the opposite. It's really saying that uh, God doesn't even care. God isn't even part of our creation. Um, the second theory uh, has its origins uh, as far back as I can tell, it, on, at least in the West, uh, in the, the ancient Epicureans. Uh, and the Epicureans understood, you, you, you're familiar with the phrase, I speak of them often, so you've heard me talk about the Epicureans. Uh, the Epicureans um, were the ones who gave us that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. But their answer to why we should eat, drink, and be merry is, is rather cynical. It's because the God don't care what happened to the earth. So bad things are going to happen. So you might as well just enjoy it, eat, drink, and be merry now because the gods do not care. They will not rescue you. So you better just sort of get through it. Uh, and uh, this notion of Epicureanism uh, what became what we know better as deism, Thomas Jefferson being one of our most famous deists. And it's this notion of a blind watchmaker, uh, that basically the, that there is there is a, a, a deity, but this deity created the created order, put it into motion as a, like a blind watchmaker. And, uh, and it just, it goes on ticking without God actually paying any more attention to God's creation. And uh, that is called deism. Now I'm going to avoid the temptation to drill down on deism this Sunday, because we're going to talk about that next Sunday in some detail. Uh, but, uh, the, the 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 bottom line of this is that God does not care about human suffering. God cannot be trusted to care. Now, the one thing I want to say about this is that the biblical witness um, comports neither with this this. Uh, you know, this notion at all. It, it, it doesn't comport. Actually, this, this notion of deism, of the, of the blind watchmaker, doesn't comport either with the scriptural witness or with our own human experience. The biblical witness, we should be clear about, it's that God is active in creation, that God is actively sustaining and redeeming and nourishing each and every one of us each and every day, each and every moment. And while God's way of doing this doesn't normally entail um, a suspension of the laws of the universe that uh, God created, we experience God nonetheless as present, present here, now, as we say, Emmanuel, God with us. God is the one who's leading us and guiding us to the still waters that our hearts are designed to desire. Now, how this happens is a very complex question, but many of us describe this experience of God as a gentle pressure upon our hearts, an impression in our minds that leads us to the paths which restore our souls. The bottom line being that God cares indeed and has given us all that we need to find those still waters and is constantly doing that. So these are the two theories that I, I want to, to just challenge today. Now let's pivot and talk about, well, what, what is it that we can say about suffering that is actually scripturally based? It comes actually from our Lord Jesus. Um, you know, the, the first step may be to, first of all, agree with the skeptics, with the new atheists, that we no longer live in, in some medieval enchanted world that saw spirits and demons behind every tragedy. But natural disasters happen. 
illnesses that we don't anticipate. And so those that we do anticipate do happen. Accidents happen. Horrible accidents happen. We understand what caused these things. We also know a thing or two about evil. We even ask forgiveness for the things we've done and left undone when one when we walk over each other uh, to get ahead at school or to get ahead at work or in the family. We know what it feels like to be betrayed. This is part of our human experience. A man is killed by some random shooting. Did God prompt the heart of that killer? Or is evil something that happens to us in an essentially random way in a world in which God has given us human freedom? Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, Anglican of of great uh, repute in theological terms, uh, claimed that we cause ourselves about five, six. I don't know where you got that number, about five, six of all human suffering. That may be right. Uh, But one thing we can be sure about is that Jesus never blamed God for human suffering. Just as we cry out, Jesus cried out the words from the psalm, Psalm 22. My, my Lord, my Lord, why, God, have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't explain away suffering and evil, but he bore them as the burdens that they actually are. He bore them for us, taking all the evil of the world upon his body on the cross. And he commissioned us to be a community, a community of sufferings, a community that, that, uh, that shares in each other's sufferings. Koinonia is the word we, we give to that. Koinonia is the Greek word. Jesus commissioned a koinonia. This was his way of saving the world by commissioning us to share in each other's burdens and to, to go out and share and include more and more in this circle of holy friendship so that our response to evil and our response to the suffering in the world uh, is God's grace, God's presence itself. So Jesus resisted suffering and evil, and he commissioned us to do the same in his name. Jesus didn't claim that suffering or evil were the will of God, but he did acknowledge disasters and accidents and evil as the essentially random acts that they are, that affect all of us. You, you, you know, the same rain uh, rains upon us all. The same sun shines upon us all. And when some Jews were slaughtered by Pontius Pilate, Jesus asked whether the ones who died were worse sinners than all those other Galileans. And when 18 folks died as a result of the Siloam Tower crashing upon them, he asked, do you think they were worse offenders? And he was making the point that I'm making here, following him, that God doesn't cause these things. These these things that happen to us, the diseases that strike us, are not God's way of punishing us, but essentially random acts, mutations, often that happened to us. So what is the Christian response to suffering properly? Well, I wanted to bring us back to the Psalm, Psalm 73, that that, that I think teaches us an awful lot, the one that Karen read earlier. Uh, It describes the experience of the good who suffer while the wicked flourish. And so the poet says, such are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in in riches, 
all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But notice that the poem doesn't end with a sudden reversal of the poet's fortunes, a banishment of his sufferings. No. Instead, the poet says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a most wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And the poet points out that the way to, to, uh, that, that we, we think in a healthy way of, of, of understanding human suffering is to recognize that God alone provides the balm for our suffering. God is not the cause, but God is the cure, the one who heals. We know the cause. Suffering arises from the fact that magma flows, from the fact that tectonic plates shift, from the fact that heat flows upward from the ocean to form hurricane clouds, from the fact that DNA mutates, from the fact of human freedom. These are the causes of our suffering. God does not cause our suffering, but God is present to us in our suffering. We see these things rightly when we go to the sanctuary of God. God doesn't cause all things mechanically, and God isn't detached from God's creation, apathetic about human suffering. Rather, God is present to us as a pressure, as an impression on our hearts and minds. It helps us to see that in precisely those moments when we feel most forsaken, God is with us. That's the truth. And so God doesn't normally work by suspending the laws of the universe, but by leading us into relationships, that koinonia, that relation, that, set up, that circle of relationships that ever widens, that is, that is uh, the means by which we share in each other's sufferings, koinonia. That's how God acts upon us, through our relationships with God and with God's creation. So when suffering happens, we don't rush to claim it was God's will. And we don't pretend that God doesn't care. Rather, we experience God as a very present help in trouble. Because as, as it was read in the, the epistle from Paul Romans to the Romans, because we weep with those who weep, we sit shiva. We refuse to pierce the silence with the platitudes that are our way of defending God, our way of denying the reality of another's suffering. Those platitudes are vicious in their effort to defend God and so make our pain not real. We experience God as a very present help in trouble when we give the gift of presence to others, just as God gave the presence of of God's self to us in Jesus Christ. One of the first things I did when Claudia died, my late wife, was to read a book by C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book after his wife died of cancer, so I thought I could relate to that. And he gave a good suggestion there on how we Christians ought to act in the face of suffering. It described perfectly what I felt as I walked with Claudia as she died. And perhaps you've felt this way, too. Perhaps you're feeling this way now. Here's what he said. No one ever told me that grief 
felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. Here's how my friend, Dr. James Howe, put it. Why do bad things happen? Well, we can talk about that later. But while the news is still fresh, we bake cakes and we deliver casseroles. We send notes that say, I love you. We just sit in the den. We hug. We pray. We think all day long about the one we love who has lost the one she loved. Brothers and sisters, God's response to suffering is to be present to us in our suffering by pressing upon our hearts and minds God's message of love. And God does that by sending a casserole brigade, a people whose faith in the great faithfulness of God empowers them to walk alongside those who walk in the darkest of valleys. May we always be such a people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.